Okay, so we continue now um, from the existence of God to God revealed himself to uh, one of the most difficult topics of all, which is the church. Okay, now this is a very difficult topic, and I'm going to take it in two parts, this week and next week. Um, the reason why it's difficult is because, well, as you have here in your notes, a lot of people will believe in God as long as he's abstract enough. It gets difficult when it gets specific. Okay, uh, You ever heard of, I got this word here in your notes, moralistic therapeutic deism. Anyone heard that, anyone ever heard that before? Okay, uh, the words hopefully will make sense to you. But they could say that when most Americans be- say they believe in God, uh, what they really believe in is moralistic therapeutic deism. Let's explain that, okay? Moralistic. Some kind of general sense of right and wrong, right? Don't be mean, don't be a jerk. Without ever getting too specific as to what that might mean, right? Kind of be good. Go out there and be good. Uh, therapeutic. It exists to help you. It, it, it's good to, to, to believe in God. It makes you feel better when you're down. And deism. Deism is a phrase um, that explains a belief in God in a very, very abstract way. Like, um, um, uh, if you look at the writings of Albert Einstein, you'll find that he believes in God very specifically. And he complains that somebody takes his writings to, 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 to promote atheism. He, he absolutely believes that there's a God. But if you start asking really specific questions of exactly what he believes, he's not really, not really sure. There's a God, he's a spirit, he's infinite, he's good, he's all-knowing. That's about as far as I... It's almost like... Remember how I said you don't need faith to believe God exists? You can do, do it based on reason? That's Einstein. He just he looks at the world and he's like, this does not explain itself. It's just you're unreasonable to think otherwise. That's deism. Are we deists? No. We believe um, that God knows you and loves you. And like anyone who knows you and loves you, he starts getting real specific. I've got here in your notes, we don't, a lot of people don't want to believe in God the Father, but God the Grandfather. So what would that mean? How about your grandfather? Did, did grandfather comes over every once and every few, every few months, and he said, hey, how you doing? And I got gifts for you. Um, and you go out with your friends, and you come back, and you miss your curfew, and granddad slaps you on the back, and he says, oh, as long as you had a good time, it's okay with me. Right? <laughs> Different family. But when, when dad, when, when, when dad uh, uh, asks you why you broke your curfew, it's a totally different story. I said 9.15. Why are you here at 9.16? What's the matter with you? Right? That's the kind of dad I would have been. Okay? Um, but, but why is dad so, so strict? It actually is because dad loves you. Right? It actually is because dad loves you. Now, this is the thing. God loves you more. And he got more specific. And when it gets specific, it gets hard. It's easy as long as there's lots of wiggle room and you can do anything you like. And part of the barrier that people have to entering into the church um, is that, believe it or not, God has gotten really specific. And um, we want to hear a lot about you know, the God who loves us and God created us and God wants to be uh, in a relationship with us, but we don't want to hear a whole lot about what God demands of us. And that's why the subject of, believe it or not, that's the biggest reason why the subject of the church is so hard. Okay, so I, But I do recognize that this is hard. Okay. <clears throat> um, 
tell you another thing that makes it difficult, the subject of the church. It's actually what sin has done to us. If you go back to the book of Genesis, and you look at the way Adam and Eve are in the garden, they walk in peace with God and with one another. As soon as they commit the sin, and I'm not going to get into the Adam and Eve story and speculation and what the sin was, any of that stuff. But let's just take it for its moral teaching right now. As soon as they commit the sin, they're divided against one another and they're divided against God. You notice this? God says, why are you hiding? They were never hiding from God before. You must have eaten of the fruit of which I told you not to eat. And what does Adam say? Not my fault. She made me do it. It's her fault, right? And she says, oh no, it's not. And so divided against one another, divided against God. That's actually one of the things that sin did to us. And you know the story of the prodigal son? Everybody know the story of the prodigal son? And he runs off to a life of dissolute living. And in the end, after he's done all this bad stuff, you remember how the father treats him? After all he's done, he he slays, kills the fatted calf, he puts his arm around him, he puts sandals on his feet, he puts a ring on his finger, cloak on his shoulders, all these things have significance. The ring on his finger is a signet ring. Even after he wasted all his money, he's now in charge of signing and sealing documents once again. Uh, Sandals on his feet, he's a member of the family once again. Cloak on his shoulders, he's got his inheritance back once again. Yesterday, you mentioned cloak. Oh, yes, but no, I, I can't, I, I got so much to go over, I can't, I can't get too astray. But, um, but the prodigal son story is the undoing of what began in the Garden of Eden. In a sense, Jesus is saying, let me tell you what the Father is really like. And I want to restore what was lost. <clears throat> but do you see how sin caused the problem in the first place? And it has that effect. and I don't want to get too far astray here, but the more you commit sin, the more you think God has left you. Has God actually left you? He hasn't gone anywhere. I got a neat little story. There's a a man and a woman, they're driving in their old-fashioned car. Back in the day, cars used to have long bench seats, and now they have bucket seats. Nobody has a bench seat anymore. But they're driving along in their long bench seat, and they see another car drive by and two very young people. And they got a bench seat too, but they are so close together that you couldn't fit a piece of paper between them, right? And the woman says to the man, why don't we sit like that anymore? And the man holding the steering wheel says, I never moved. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what happens with us and God. God says, I never moved. (laughs) But sin has this effect on us. And, 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 And it's one of the reasons why it's hard Because we don't realize that when God gives us commandments, they're actually done in greatest love. You know, I've got here in your notes, just like a a parent says to a small child, don't cross the street. You ever seen a small child have their will defied? What do they do? Temper tantrum. Yeah, why can't I cross the street? They have no idea that even though they can't do what they feel like doing, that it's it's actually love. We're like that small child. Okay, so it's hard. God it's very, very plan. hard. Like, you know, I always hear, like, it's like God has a plan for you. But, like, what about, like, serial killers and, like, you know, all that? Like, Well, I'll tell you what. I, I've got a whole God bunch of stuff I've got to get through. If you can hold that thought, <laughs> we'll take it afterwards, it. okay? There's just there's just too much to get through that I have to get through, all right? We'll, 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 but it's, these are all good questions. We'll take it afterwards. Or you can come early 
and uh, and I'll take questions early. All right. I'll bring it early next time. Yeah, that's good. We, there's tons of questions. No, no, no mm-hmm. doubt. Um, okay. Um, and it's very, very difficult. So we have to. And you say your creed to say, "I believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church," and it's it's a quite a, it's quite a leap of faith. We have to uh, overcome what's called the scandal of appearances. Right? Faith means perceiving that which can't be seen through that which can be seen. It's very, very hard. So we say God is a creator. But what about all these random events, meaningless events that seem to happen in, in, you know, in the world, like hurricanes? And I thought God was the creator. God is just. But why does evil always seem to get the last word if God is just? Uh, how about this one? Jesus came to make us holy. Why is it that Jesus' people are often no holier or often worse than the people who don't darken the doorstep of a church? It's, it, this is a scandal of appearances. It's very, very hard. Okay, it's very, very, it's very, very hard to do. Okay, let me let me begin to approach this. This is why I was going to take us two weeks to get through this. All right, here's what we believe. Let's just state this: God came in the person of Jesus Christ, and He actually established a community, a real human community, a physical, institutional, complex, and sometimes messy community. We believe that He actually did this. He never wrote a book. But he definitely established a church. Look back on the New Testament and on this rock I will build my church. Okay, so we're going to over, try to overcome the scandal of appearances. And we don't want to learn to see the church as a necessary evil. People can maybe learn to see it as a necessary evil. If you see it properly, you'll actually see it as a, as a good. It, it's going to take some work to get there, right? I've been, I've been working at this for a long time. Um, and, and, and what I understand and how I see it, uh, I see I live in the same world you do, but I'd like to try to help you to see what I see, because you, if you do, you will see it as a good, not as a necessary evil. Lots of people like to separate Jesus and the church. So, well, I, I believe in Jesus, but definitely not the church. Uh, Jesus is a good guy. Jesus is a good guy. What I'd like to share with you, there's no separation and there cannot ever be. The church is the body of Christ any more than there's separation between you and your eyeball, right? Or you and your toe. Um, it's you. Um, and, and the church is the Lord. Okay? Um, so when we say church, what do you think of it? Do you think of it as an institution? Do you think of it as an organization? Do you think of it as an administrative body? If you do, it's partly our own fault. That's very often how we've presented it. But let me give you two big categories to understand the church. It's the people of God. It's one category. And it's the mystical body of Christ. Are those two different things or are those one thing? One thing. Remember, it's, it's Christ we're ultimately talking about here. Okay? Um, and this is, we're all alive with one life. Let's take a look at this right here. Okay. Now, um, okay. uh, the church as the people of God it's messed up. I've got it in the right order here. Okay. Um, the word church means that which belongs to the Lord. I, I like etymology. I like words. Uh, kyriake is the root word, which comes from ek kalein, which means to be called out of. That's the root of our word ecclesia, 
or ecclesial. Maybe you've heard of the church as the ecclesial community or ecclesiastical, that kind of churchy sounding word. It means the convocation. It means the assembly. And what we actually mean by this is there's a group of people who have been called out of the secular world to belong to the Lord. That's what the church is. Now let's think about that. I could go on and on about any of these topics for like for an hour. Um, but this is what we're supposed to be. You know what the word holy means? It means set apart. The building upstairs. It doesn't look like any other building in town. It's set apart. Uh, you go to Mass, you see the chalice that the priest uses. Does it look like anything you have in your cupboard? It's set apart. When you hear the music at Mass, it's not like what you hear on the radio. It's set apart. Look at the priest. At least the way he's dressed. Stick out like a sore thumb. I'm set apart. You know what else we're supposed to be set apart in? The way we live. That's the way we're really supposed to be set apart. But that's what the church is. It called out of the ordinary to be extraordinary. That's what we're supposed to be. Go back to the Old Testament. okay? And you'll find this in the prophets. Now I can summarize the message of all the prophets for you. The prophets go to the people in, in Israel in the Old Testament. They say, you're supposed to be different from all the other nations of the world. And the people say, we don't want to be different. We want to be just like everybody else. We don't want to be different. Do, do, do you want to be different? You'll, it's comfortable being like everybody else, isn't it? The people of the Old Testament, they didn't want to be like everybody else. The prophet said, you've got to be different or you're no good to everybody else. It's kind of what God says to us. You've got to be different or you're no good to, to, than, than everybody else. So that's what the word church means, right? Now, there's a couple of huge points we've got to make here. The idea of the church is older than Christianity. Like I said, the Hebrew covenant community who were called out of Egypt, right? Moses goes up to Pharaoh, let my people go, and they go across the Red Sea and they go through the desert. You all know the story, right? Okay. From the time they got the Ten Commandments, they were something different from the rest of the world. Now, the church saw itself as the continuation of that same identity, uh, it's, it's a continuation of that same identity. So we would say that the idea of God calling a people out is older than Christianity itself. Lots else we mean by church. Um, I could say the church is the Catholic church headed in Rome. We mean that. I could also say the church is the diocese. Who knows what a diocese is? Who does not know what a diocese is? Raise your hand. I only got two options. Some I have mention. an idea. Okay. The diocese is the, is the local church headed in this area. Our diocese is the diocese of Arlington. And the bishop, the bishop he's kind of like a local pope. That's kind of the way it works. Or how about the parish? The church exists in the parish too. This little postage stamp of territory known as St. Jude Parish is headed by a little local leader who happens to be me. Um, I'm kind of like the little local pope. And the way the church operates is as long as I don't break the rules of the bishop, I'm, he's not going to step on my toes. Same thing with the bishop to the pope. Okay, And all of this is the church. The church is bigger than just us. The church is also bigger than the time in which we live. This is something people almost never recognize. But if I just said the church is the body of Christ... How about all the people who have died and gone to heaven? Are they part of the body of Christ? Are they alive? 
they're not alive on this earth, but in their soul, they're more alive than you are, believe it or not. And one of my favorite, I, I, you ever heard of uh, Shadowlands? I don't want to get too far astray, but it's a biography of C.S. Lewis. Um, and C.S. Lewis came up with this phrase called Shadowlands. Who's heard this before? Okay, this is a neat idea. He said that this life is the Shadowlands. Reality is what comes next. We're actually the ones, we, we think of the people that are dead as being kind of like not really there, like ghosts. He said, and I think he's absolutely right, the absolute reverse is the case. The people who have died and are in God's presence, they're the ones who are really in reality. We're the ones drifting around in the shadows. Okay? So are they, are they alive? Not physically, but we said they're more, spiritually they're more alive than you are. Are they part of the body of Christ? Yeah, they're part of the church. How about those who aren't in heaven but they're in purgatory, which we'll explain later. They're part of the church too. All right? So it's a lot bigger a lot bigger than just what we think. Okay, so a few ideas there to help you understand what we mean by church. Okay, now why do we have a church? Two big reasons. Um, one is natural, and one is supernatural, and I hope both of these make sense. Naturally, just naturally, we are all dependent on one another, and you can never extract yourself from that dependency. Um... There's butchers, there's bakers, there's candlestick makers. We need each other. And, 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 um, and morally, we're also dependent on... Another thing people don't recognize. Everything you do affects everybody else. I learned a couple of really neat facts about me. I learned that my family came to America on the Mayflower. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. pat myself on the back, isn't that cool? Well, guess what else happens when your family's been in America that long? Watered down. Well, uh, one thing that happened was that my family, living through all the ages in Virginia, what do you think? What do you think they might have owned back in the day? Lots of slaves. Yeah. So then I found out my family owned slaves, and now suddenly I'm ashamed. Right? Did, did I do anything? No. But am I tied to what's happened before me? Yes. That's the truth for all of us. Um, you know, I, I just every time you go through airport security, did you blow up a plane? No, but you're paying the price for somebody else who did. We, are, we actually do exist in communities, and you can never take yourself apart from that. Now, part of the fact that God established a church is that he recognizes our nature. Human community is a fact. That was part of the plan. Now, here's another thing that's a fact. You look at how God's always acted down through the ages. He starts with a leader. He inspires somebody. You can talk about Moses, you can talk about the prophets, you can talk about people like Samson or the big shots of the Old Testament. From a leader, he gives them a mission. Moses, set my people free. From the mission comes a community. That's how God's always worked. He's never gotten a bunch of atomistic individuals, each going their own way, completely answering to nobody else but themselves and God. He's just never done that. It's just not the way God acts, because it's not who we are. All right? Um, so he did this with Israel. He did this with Moses. Um, uh, and, 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 he, and, he's doing it, and he's doing it right now. Okay? You go through the Old Testament, and you can learn a lot about who we are as, as a church. If you left the Old Testament covenant community while you were wandering through the desert, it was a death sentence. There was no individual promise of making it to the promised land. And similarly, none of us, whether we like it or not, ever travel to God alone. We just don't. You just aren't 
In, in America, especially at this moment in history, we have a strong independent streak with strong individualism. We haven't always been so individualistic. At this hour in history, we are. The pendulum will swing back. We may never live to see it, but the pendulum swings back and forth from, you know, you look at World War II. Everyone recognized their responsibility to the war effort and their responsibility to the country. No one's like that anymore. Now it's all about the individual. It'll, it'll swing back. It always does. But what I'm trying to say is no matter where the pendulum swings, our nature has always been part of this community. So it's a natural, it's a natural, um, it's a natural reality. Okay? And God establishes a community of, of 12, his apostles, the new people of Israel. And he says, whoever hears you, hears me. And he gave them a mission. Go out to all the nations and proclaim the good news. Just as an FYI, that mission began on the Sunday we call Pentecost. Who's heard of Pentecost before? Okay. I'll ask people who want to be confirmed, what's Pentecost? And nobody knows what Pentecost is. That was the day when the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles. We call it the birthday of the church. It's really interesting, Pentecost. Um, these apostles had lived with Jesus for three years. They'd watched him die. They'd watched him rise from the dead. They'd watched him ascend into heaven, but they still didn't know who he was. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit came, as he promised, that they finally understood. And they went out and preached the gospel for the very, very first time. Okay? So, um, the church, here we are. We're not going to be perfect ever down here on this earth. We'll only be perfect in heaven. But it's important that you understand this much. Please don't think of it as an innovation. It isn't something that Christians made up. God's been working in a community since the very, very beginning. Right? And, and it's part of Jesus' original plan. Um, and, and secondly, try though we might, we're never going to break ourselves away from that community. Natural reasons. We help each other. Okay, supernatural reason. The church is actually a continuation of Jesus' incarnation. Who knows what I mean by incarnation? Who does not know what I mean by incarnation? Not reincarnation, but the, but the, but the word reincarnation will touch at the same touch at the same root, okay? Um, but incarnation is that God took on flesh, became a man, okay? Um, and that's what we mean by incarnation. And he walked around. Have you ever had the thought that you wish to live at the time of Jesus? Ever? I that's, got close in Afghanistan. I don't close? ever want to get in. Okay, I, well, I don't want to live that way. But, um, no, that's, but I'll ask this question, and, and, and most people have gone, no way. I never wanted to live in the time of Jesus. And I think, gosh... I've always thought that would be so cool. I mean, with the, the healthcare might not be the best, right? But if I had a time machine, that's where I'd go. I'd go to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and then Jesus would be right there. And you know what he'd say to me? He'd say, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be at St. Jude. Get, go. That's what he'd say to me. But you'd almost think of it as like it's a privilege if I could have heard his voice, if I could have asked him questions. Wow. I want to tell you something really shocking. That privilege has not, in fact, been denied you. Because what we believe is that what Jesus taught is still being taught. What help Jesus gave is still being given. What shepherding and guidance Jesus gave is still being given. It's still going on through the church. Okay? It's, we say it's a it's continuation of what Jesus began. And I mentioned this last week. St. Luke who wrote his gospel, knew this would be a hard lesson for people to learn. So he wrote a sequel to his gospel. 
the Gospel of Luke, the sequel is the Acts of the Apostles. I think I said that last week, didn't I? Yes. Yeah. Go to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and it says, Dear Theophilus, he writes to this guy named Theophilus. I don't know idea who this is. Dear Theophilus, let me tell you all about what Jesus said. The very beginning of Acts of the Apostles, he says, In my first account, Theophilus, I told you all about what Jesus said. Now let me tell you all about the church. It's a sequel. And why did he do it? Because he wanted people to know that even though Jesus has ascended back into heaven, it's, he's still active and working through the church. Let me just close one, one, one loop there. Um, remember how I said the apostles didn't know about who Jesus was until Pentecost? Had he already ascended into heaven by Pentecost? Yes. One of the disadvantages that we never imagine about how great it might be if we could talk to Jesus personally is that the people who got to talk to Jesus personally, they didn't see him rise from the dead yet. They didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. They weren't sure who this guy was. They weren't sure who this guy was. They knew he was a teacher. They knew he was special. They knew he was a man of God. But that you can look back on and say, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. We know that, but they didn't know that. I mean, one of the greatest leaps of faith ever in all of history was the bad thief on the cross. Do you know the story of the two thieves on the cross? Yes. And one looks to Jesus and says, Get me down from here. What's the matter with you? He said, Get, himself, get, get yourself down, didn't he say that? He said, Yeah, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're the Son of God... Bring yourself down, and us, and us as well, right? And the good thief looks at him, bloodied and bleeding, and, and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, that's a leap of faith. He looks at a guy who's on the worst day of his life, and he's bleeding to death, and he's being laughed at and scorned about the hands of his enemies, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That guy's got faith. So one of the disadvantages of living in the time of Jesus is you weren't quite sure who this guy was yet. And one of the disadvantages of living in the time of the church is that you look at the church and you think, it's, it's, a, matter, it's a matter with this group, right? Um, it takes faith no matter where you are. It'll never, ever be easy, okay? But what, we're, what I want to try to share with you is that he still is active and he's still teaching, okay? Um, and that's why it's important to say it's not so much the church as Christ working through the, through the church. When there's a baptism, it's not so much me baptizing as Christ baptizing through me. I'm just the instrument. Or the Eucharist. It's not so much me giving you the Eucharist. It's Christ giving you the Eucharist. I'm the instrument. We'll talk about this later when we talk about what the priesthood is. Okay? Um, forgiving sins. It's one of my favorite examples. You go to confession. You hear the priest say, I absolve you of your sins. I. I don't say Jesus, Jesus forgives you of your sins. Go in peace. I say, I. It's almost like God borrows the use of my tongue. It's in the first person, okay? But it's, it's uh, the Lord's working through the instrument of the priest. Now, I like to say that uh, God does this in more than just the church. Question, um, do you, uh, are you a creation of God? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Where'd you get your life? Yeah. Parents. I mean, physically speaking, yeah. right? Are your parents Perfect never have been. Did God still get his work done through them even though they weren't perfect? Yes. That's kind of like what God does through priests and sacraments. There's certain things you can't screw up. All right? Your parents can't screw up the fact, they can maybe be the worst parents in the world, but they can't screw up the fact that they gave you life and that that life comes from God and that you have a soul. Similarly, we're saying the Lord works through the church in this way. You're going to get the grace even if the priest who's given you that sacrament is the worst priest in the world. There's certain things he can't screw up because God's the one at work. Does that make sense? 
Okay, it's a continuation of Jesus' incarnation. And what I'm giving you now is a summary of tons and tons and tons of things that I could clarify and explain more deeply. But this is just a survey right now. It's a continuation of, of our Lord's incarnation. But know this, there are certain things the church can't mess up uh, because, God, but because Christ is working through the church. All right? So it's divine, uh, it's spiritual, but it's also human and it's also physical. Until the end of time, it's going to be filled with man's fault, just like your parents are. Um, but, uh, but God is still at work. God is still at work through this. Okay? So that's the first thing that the church is. It's the people of God. Right, here's the second huge thing that the church is. It's the mystical body of Christ. This is very mysterious. You've heard of St. Paul. Have you heard of St. Paul getting knocked off his horse? Yes. When St. Paul got knocked off his horse, he had a vision of Jesus. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He didn't say, why do you persecute my church? He didn't say, why do you persecute my people? He said, Saul, why do you persecute me? This is really hard to understand. But we actually say that the church is the body of Christ. It's alive with one life. Right now, you. Uh, is your hand you? Part of you, Right? If you shake your hand, I'm no cell biologist, but I've been told that tens of thousands of cells fall off your hand and fall onto the table. What happens to those cells? They die. Like soldiers going AWOL, right? They they can't live apart from the life of the body. Similarly, there's a divine life out there. It can't die. This is the life that lives forever, the life of heaven. It's Jesus' life. And what we say is you've been grafted onto that if you've been baptized. That's what happens in baptism. You've been made alive with his own life. And the idea is that you'll live the way he would want you to live, right? But let's begin with this, with this idea that the church, is, the church is that same life. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Live in me as I live in you. The branches, they don't have their own life. They're alive with the life of the vine. It's more than, this is really important, it's more than just obey this rule and say this prayer and do this morality. Um, you're not a member of the church the same way you're a member of the Elks Club. You're not a member of this church the same way you're the member of the United States Army. Um, you know, you can join the army and you can leave the army and you're not in the army anymore. Did you know that once you've been baptized, even if you leave the church, even if you have renounce your faith, you can't ever be unbaptized. You know that? You're always part of the Lord. Always. Um, and so we say it's, your membership in the church is not it's not one of like joining a club. It's one of identity. It's like the membership of your hand to your body. Or your, your spleen or your heart, more like it. That would actually be a better, a better image. I can cut off the hand and you still live. I can't cut out the heart. Right? It's no more you. That's kind of like what it's like. You're, you're that united to the Lord. Okay? Um, so here's what I'm trying to say. Please don't think the church is an institution. I mean, it is an institution in one sense. Have I told you what an institution is? Real quick definition, if I have already said it. An institution is a group that exists to bring many people to a common purpose. That's what an institution is. So marriage, believe it or not, it's an institution. It's an inst- it might not sound very romantic, but it's an institution. It's, a, it's an organization designed to get people to a common purpose, and the common purpose is heaven. That's the p- reason why there's marriage. It's supposed to get your soul into heaven. So remember that when 
wasting my life. That's what we're supposed. That's what we're all about. Okay. Um, but the church is. It exists to get everybody to heaven. It is an institution, but it's much, much more than an institution. Okay. You're alive with Christ's own life. It's it, and and that's that's very very important because you'll never understood who who we really are until that is that is in place. Now again, we're going to pick this up next week, okay? Because there's so much to say about this. As time goes on, some things change. Essential things do not change. As time goes on, some things change just for the sake of organization. Essential things never change, okay? Um, as time goes on, new apostles emerge. How many apostles were there? Twelve. Twelve. Then what happened to Judas? Thrown out, but you said added two more. And he got, and he got replaced so by Matthias, and then we're up to twelve again, unless you count Judas kind of sort of symbolically, and then we're up to thirteen. And then comes Paul, and then comes Barnabas, and then it's not entirely clear there might be a third James. There's two James called by Jesus. There might be a third one. So even before the end of the New Testament, you've got maybe fifteen apostles. And there's more, uh, there's, there, there, there's, and even before the, actually the apostles is out, there's deacons and there's priests, okay? Um, new complexities emerge, new churches emerge, new necessities for new administration emerges. The essential nature never, never changes. The body of apostles, guided by the Holy Spirit, entrusted with the task of preaching and giving people God's grace and guiding them, that'll never end. The apostles, can there ever be new apostles? There cannot. Here's the definition of an apostle. Personally called by Jesus and a witness to Jesus' resurrection. They're all gone. There'll never be another one. But we say that some took over after they're done and took on their same job. We call these people bishops. What's a bishop? A bishop is the successor to an apostle. A friend of mine took the... uh, uh, my ordination and who ordained me a priest and looked up who ordained him a priest and looked up who ordained him a priest and traced it back to the year 1507 until all the records but if you could go back to 1507 you could find out who ordained that guy a priest you could keep taking it all the way back to the apostles and that's why we say we're an apostolic church okay we say that we're a continuation of what the lord started it got bigger over time right But we say that the bishop is the successor to the apostles. He's received his authority from an unbroken continuity. Now, I showed up at St. Jude Church in 2011, and everybody said, hooray, is there a new priest? Why did they say that? They didn't vote for me. They didn't have a search committee and hire hire a new pastor. You know, a lot of Protestant churches do that. You might know that better than I do. And if they don't like the guy, they take a vote, a vote of no confidence, and they show him the door. You might think that's a great idea, right? You might really like that idea. You don't do that in the Catholic Church. Why not? Where's the authority come from? Well, comes from we say, ultimately, it comes through down through the bishops. I'm your priest because the bishop said so. The bishop is your bishop because, well, you trace it all the way back. Ultimately, it's the, it's the way the Lord set it up. Okay, so we say we're an apostolic church. The, my authority didn't come from the people. It come for, came from the bishop, and he got his authority from an unbroken continuity through the apostles down through, the, down through time. All right? Here's another important point. The priest doesn't act on his own. 
I am not a lone ranger. I, if the bishop wanted to, he could walk in that door and he could say, Hudgens, that's enough out of you. And I would not be allowed to preach anymore. If he wanted to, he could say, and no more confessions for you. And I couldn't, I'm not a lone ranger. I act as a co-worker with the bishops. There's one priest in our area, I won't name his name, who regularly from the pulpit preached bad stuff after bad stuff after bad stuff. And the bishop showed up and said, you can't preach anymore. You're allowed to do two things. You can hear confessions and you can make hospital visits, but that's it. He spent the next several years doing confessions and making hospital visits. He can't, he can't say, heck with you. He can't do that. He doesn't have the authority. Okay? So I'm, not a, I'm, I'm a co-worker with the Order of Bishops. I'm not a lone ranger. Um, uh, certain things will always certain things will always be there in, in, in that sense. Uh, there will always be a pope. Jesus put Saint Peter in the head of the church. You, you know, he, he put Peter uh, over all the rest of the apostles in authority. Peter was martyred in Rome, and the guy who took over from him as the successor of Saint Peter, we call him the Pope. The guy who took over from him, his name was. Linus, not the guy with the blanket from the Snoopy comics, right? But his name was Linus. Uh, the guy who took over from him, his name was Cletus. The guy who took over from him, his name was Clement. Uh, you can keep tracing them all the way down until you come up to our present day. There's been some troubles down through yeah, history. What about the secession when they had two? Well, I, I mean, I could I could go off into history with you, um, but when you when 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 push came to shove and they investigated what happened, they recognized that one of them was illegit and admitted to such. There was actually a time when there were as many as three. Uh, we, we've been through some bad times. But, um, but, the, but, but the false ones, the anti-popes they're called, eventually it became clear that somebody was trying to make a political leap uh, and, and even admitted to his... Once the, the, the church didn't used to be headed in Rome, it was actually headed in France. Do you know that? For 70 years in the, in the 1300s. He got up and he went to Avignon. He got up and he went to Avignon. Why Avignon? Political reasons. And the south of France is a nice place to live. Okay? <laughs> and it was one of our saints who came back, St. Catherine of Siena, and said, get yourself back to Rome. It's really confusing for people. Get back there. So he went back to Rome. But that's always going to be in the case. Certain things can change. So there's cardinals. Have there always been cardinals? There have not always been cardinals. I have in your notes here where that came from. Okay? Used to be that the Holy... And you have to know lots of history to know this. The Holy Roman Emperor who was neither holy nor Roman, or an emperor, would ever, would have an outsized vote, voice in choosing the Pope. Along comes a holy Roman emperor named Henry IV, who's six years old. The Pope says, we can't have a six-year-old picking the next Pope. He creates a circle of bishops that he calls the cardinals. Cardinal comes from Latin word cardo, meaning hinge. The hinge bishops, the most important bishops. He has them dress up in red. Why red? It's a symbol of the fact they're supposed to love God so much they're going to shed their red blood rather than to deny him. Is it from the Roman tradition as well, though? Um, red, something special in Rome? No, the red symbolized blood. So he had him dress up in red. By the way, the cardinal bird was named for the cardinal bishop. They crossed the ocean. They started looking around North America. They found this red bird with a pointy top. This is a cardinal. Look at that. That's where it got. So anyway, um, but, that, that's, but could we do away with cardinals tomorrow if we wanted to? We could. We could do. We could do. It's not essential. People say, what about monsignors? What's a monsignor? That came from the days when the church was headed in France. 
There were certain people who worked in the papal court. They became known in French as Monsignor or My Lord. And there's something funny about honors. They have a way of sticking around. They don't go away, so it's stuck. Okay? But we could do away with them. Current Pope Francis, he's minimized them as much as he, as he possibly could. Um, but it's always Christ who's operative. It's always the church that's in operation. So please understand, there are certain things. We say the Mass in English now. We used to say it in Latin. We could change it back. It wouldn't change the essential nature. Okay? And, I, and again, you can, go, you can study in great depth what that essential nature is, but if you understand that there are certain things that are essential that can never change, you, you got my main point today, okay? Um, there are two big ministries in the church. A unity of mission, a diversity of ministries. There's ordained and there's lay. All right? Now, we go talk about the ordained ministry. Like I said, from the beginning, God spoke his message by means of someone who was sent by him. And he gets up and he preaches, not in his own name, right? but, 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 but by God's own authority. So the mission to preach in Christ's name ultimately comes from Christ himself. And Christ established the apostles. And like I said, uh, as I mentioned before, um, the successors to the apostles became known as the bishops. And the bishops established co-workers, which became known as presbyters. This is all in the Acts of the Apostles, by the way. And I, as I said before, um, you know, I don't act in, 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 in my own name. Um, I act as a co-worker with the Order of Bishops. Uh, but the idea that God will work through me when I do the sacraments, that's what the ordained ministry is supposed to do. Um, the authority of teaching is ultimately not mine. Did you know that? The priest does not have the ultimate authority of teaching in the church. The bishops do. And that's why, um, and we're in really tru- real, real trouble these days with different bishops saying different things. And we'll make, we'll find our way through. We'll get our, we'll get ourselves out to the other side of this storm. But here's something that's really important: um, individual priests don't have that ability. We don't. It's the bishops that do. Um, and as Jesus said, "When he who hears you hears me," we believe that in listening to the authority that the church has to teach, we're listening to Christ Himself. And in matters of faith, that is, how are you supposed to live? what are you supposed to believe, and in matters of morality, how are you supposed to live, this is a huge idea. The church won't make a mistake. It might not say anything. It might hold its tongue. It might not know what to say. But when it speaks, it's not going to say something wrong. The church will always guide people. As I said, this gets very specific. That's the ordained ministry. Um, It exists for your well-being, not for mine. Now, the lay ministry... You're supposed to take the message and go out into the world, into the places where I can't get, the bishop can't get, where the pope can't get. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the leaven of society. What happens when salt goes bad? What did Jesus say? It's good for nothing but be thrown out and trampled underfoot. This is the lay ministry. I heard this once said, the most important part of the church are the doors. Because that's where the job begins. Get out, get out those doors. It isn't supposed to be something we keep inside and, and under roof. But you're the ones that are you're the ones that are on the front lines of society. You're the ones that are the light of the world. You're the ones that are leaven of the earth. The priests can do very, very little. The mission of the laity is to apply the gospel in their daily life, to take the Eucharist that the priest gave them and to make that difference in their heart, to take the teaching that they heard and to make that difference in their in their living. And of course, the priest does the same thing. But man, your reach is way bigger than the priest's reach. 
But it's ultimately the same mission. It's just a different way of working towards that mission. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, now, as I said, it's a huge topic. We're not anywhere near done. We have a whole other week of this next week, and that's where we'll pick up where we left off.